This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. Mayor Mike Johnston marks his 100th day in office today. So me and producer Paul Caroli sat down with him at the city and county building downtown to talk about the real reason Johnston canceled plans for that micro community in the Golden Triangle and what he says to the critics on council complaining about a lack of transparency. Today is Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. I was just saying that I feel slightly embarrassed hosting you in the office, which feels like your freshman dorm room that has no decorations in it. So if someone's got like a water lilies poster hanging around or an old reservoir dogs poster or something, we could use oh, it because yeah. right now it's pretty much just empty. Did you have a musician poster in your dorm room? Um, I, what did I have in my dorm room? Great question. I, Great um, question. <laughs> I actually, so I had a super artistic guy who was one of my roommates who actually hand drew on our wall a, uh, my, the is it the Da Vinci painting of sort of God giving life to man? It's right. Oh, it's sure. The, I think it's the, the oh. Da Vinci or Michelangelo, maybe. So he painted, he hand drew that on our wall, and I was like, okay, I don't have that skill, but I will be happy to put my. That's a way better than like a poster of Bob Marley or yeah, something, exactly. which is like no diss of Bob Marley, but it's more I, run of the mill. I just left my heavy, smelly bag of hockey gear instead <laughs> in the common room. That was my contribution. You're a hockey player. I was a hockey player and a soccer player. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Me too. I played hockey like my whole life. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a goalie, which accounts for Interesting. some things. Yeah. A lot of shots to the head. Uh, yeah, <laughs> goalies, I mean, okay. That explains some things to me. I, I like that. I like that. Uh, well, let, what do you say we get started? Yeah, let's well, do it. Sounds great. Mayor Mike Johnston, <laughs> welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thank you. So delighted to be back with you. Let's talk about uh, the biggest news of the week, I think, which is um, your, your escalating disagreement with city council over the budget for rental assistance next year. They asked for an additional $17.5 million from what you put in your budget. Um, and, and they're talking about you know helping people keep from getting evicted. Um, you agreed to only $3 million more what is the core disagreement here? Because it seems like this really is the thing. Yeah, uh, I actually don't see it as a disagreement at all. I think we both totally agree okay. with this priority. I'd start with obviously the importance of, you all know this, we want to keep people from entering homelessness in the first place. And it is not just the right humanitarian thing to do. It's the right financial thing to do. Often if someone is uh, at risk of being evicted and they get evicted, we can spend two or three, $5,000 to help them stay in their unit and, and, and be able to pay rent. Or if we don't and they become homeless, we pay thirty or $40,000 to support them. So it's just good math for the city. We agree with that. Um, that's actually why sort of hidden in the budget story is we already proposed a 500% expansion of rental assistance uh, in our budget. So we are all in on that. What the council's worried about, which we understand is last year, the state did about $3 million. We did 15 million this year, which is a big number. But last year we had about 15 million from state and federal sources that disappeared this year. Hmm. And so what it looked like was there was the total number is smaller 
our city contribution is 500% higher. So I, I'm all in in believing that it matters. We want to do as much of it as we can. We just have the solemn obligation to deliver a balanced budget. And so we got to manage it against a bunch of other priorities, like making sure we can build more affordable housing and making sure we can be able to get people's not have to have them pay more for trash and making sure we can get enough sheriffs to fill our uh, jail so we don't have people that aren't safe or being well cared for. And so, so we're just trying to be mindful about all the other things that matter. But I share this as a huge priority for the city and agree with the council on that. But it does seem like there is a disagreement because they want more money. Then oh, it seems like you're willing to give. They definitely want more money. And I understand that. We are, There's a lot of things. I have a list of 50 things I'd love to spend more money on at the city. Unfortunately, we're not the federal government where you can print money. You have to deliver a balanced budget. And so they would like to do more. Uh, that would require us to dip into the city reserves um, to do that. I, I'm not sure what they'll propose, how it's funded. So I will have to hear what they describe. But right now, to dip into reserves would be, you know, it risks the city's bond rating. It risks us not having those reserves we need if we do have another 3,000 people a night that are coming that are refugees secrets from Venezuela. We know there are just contingency things that cities have to meet uh, that we want to make sure to be ready for. And so we're just trying to balance our shared commitment to rental assistance with our shared commitment to make sure we have a balanced budget and we have a uh, city that can withstand whatever crises might come. So speaking of the budget and city council, um, Councilwoman Stacey Gilmore made this video and she accused you of not being transparent with uh, which specific projects are getting funding in the 2024 budget. Do you have a response to Councilwoman Gilmore? Yeah, I, I understand her question. The, the issue was about, well, the way the budget process works is, you know, all of the agencies all work for me. I'm the CEO where they are all uh, exe executive agencies. So they each prepare their own budget of what they'd like to do. Uh, and they bring that to us from 25 different agencies. As you can imagine, each department also has their own long list of things they want to do. And then we have to take all those requests and make all 25 of those budget proposals meet. And so, you know, those individual agencies would have proposed together, you know, three, $400 million more than we have in the budget. So we have to then decide which of these can we fix, which can we do, which can we not do. That's an internal conversation our team has with the cabinet leaders to figure out how we prioritize that budget. And then we all go forward on it together. And so what she wanted was, what were the things people submitted that we ended up deciding not to fund? Kind of what is everyone's individual wish list. So we're entirely transparent about everything in the budget that we fund. But for us, that part of making the budget is what we do as an internal team to look at all of our priorities. And we have to make hard decisions that every department's got 25 priorities and we can't meet all 25 of them. And the budget, uh, the, the leaders of each department know that entirely, which is why there's never been a practice in the city's history for them to release early budget negotiations to the public. So this is not something that maybe a previous mayor would have done. Uh, this is something that every mayor has done all all throughout history. Has never okay. has never released the internal first draft negotiations of what of what of what departments ask for. Uh, okay. Because they make they come to us with all the things they'd love to do, which is what we ask them to do: be big and visionary. And we got to figure out how that matches with the other twenty four departments who also have big and visionary ideas with a limited budget. So it's just a part of the budget process that every mayor has done before us. We've done consistently. The city attorney has made it clear that it's protected work uh, documents. So there's uh, never been a process to do this before, and uh, we don't see a reason to change it. Hmm. All right, well, let's move on then to, um, I think, the biggest issue in the city. It's clearly been your biggest priority uh, in your first 100 days, which is homelessness, our unhoused crisis. Um, I want to start with something that you did that I thought was very cool, which was, uh, do you remember the first sweep you ordered at 22nd and Curtis? It was maybe like two weeks after your inauguration. You went down a couple of nights before to the camp and you were talking to people and I read that you exchanged phone numbers with some folks who were living there. 
Have you kept in touch with those people? I have kept in touch with people at a number of different uh, encampments that we go to visit because I think they're, they're constituents and residents who have concerns and questions. And I find I, I learn a lot from them. Well, you know, one of them, one of the um, women that I exchanged phone numbers with at that location was a former city employee. And hmm. she had, she'd worked in the Denton, Denver city and county just three years ago and then went through some tough life circumstances and now trying to find her way back together. So it was a, it was a great example for me of, you know, every one of these individuals are just one or two steps away from being the person that's working next to you or, um, and so, uh, yeah, I find, and sometimes it's services, you know, it might be, we got someone who's really trying to get connected to the VA and can't get connections and I'll give them my number or Chase's number or someone on our team to say, we know we have departments that do great work. Sometimes it helps to just have a direct contact. Um, and so, yeah, I try to build those relationships where wherever I can. Well, so with that sweep, that early sweep, what I'm particularly curious about is the offer of housing. Cause that's something that you came in promising to do very different from your predecessor was to make sure anytime you ordered a sweep, you'd have housing to offer. And in that first one, you weren't able to do that. You didn't have any housing. So I wonder if you, you got any of those people who you got their phone numbers, did you get them connected to housing now that some units have become available? Uh, I'm really glad that you asked. I think there's been some, I get some questions about this sometime, which is this was exactly our commitment is what we want to do is actually open units of housing we can move people to when we close encampments. That's why we're trying to bring on these thousand units to move the people that need it into those units. We've done our first successful closure of an encampment that we closed and moved all 83 people into housing. That was great. Um, what we do know is in the interim, you know, we, those thousand units aren't going to be on ready until the close to the end of the year. So we have in the meantime, folks are stuck still living outdoors, which we don't like, uh, but we're trying to support them in every way that we can. In some places we're bringing bathroom access or trash pickup. But what I've said is only in places where we have either real public health or public safety risks or right away infringements, or if there's private property involved, do we still have to sometimes move people, which we don't like to do, but we can't avoid it. In that instance, there was a massive rat infestation um, underneath all those right. tents that was putting folks at risk. We had another uh, camp that had a couple of uh, re re repeated shootings. We had one that had a, an explosion from multiple um, ga uh, propane gas tanks. And so we've tried to really limit those movements to when there are those public health or safety risks. But I know what people ask is, it is still possible we will have camp movements or cleanups over the next month or two before we can get everyone to housing because we may still have public health or safety risks. But the end goal is always to be able to close encampments and move people to housing. All we have to do is make sure we can bring on enough units fast enough to do that. That's why we're running at such breakneck speed, right? I mean, I think previously it took something like three years to site the first micro community in Denver, and that was for 40 units. You know, we're trying to do nine sites in a thousand units in 90 days, um, which is kind of historic on all fronts. And we know that city employees are working around the clock to make it happen. Uh, and I know for some people, what the great feedback I get is every time I talk to people in encampments now, they say, hey, when's my housing coming? Like, we're ready to go, ready hmm. to move. Um, and I love that urgency and that drives our urgency, but that's why we got to get those units up so we can get people moved into housing. Hmm. So Denverite reported that, quote, anyone who was homeless on the streets who secured housing through the city and lives indoors for at least 14 days will have received what Johnson is considering a housing outcome. What is this 14 days? How did you come up with yeah, that? Yeah, and that's, and that's um, my mistake. I'm just not communicating clearly on that. Uh, it was funny. We thought we were, we were improving the system because the current HUD outcome was one day. So they count someone housed if they're in housing for one day. And we were like, hmm. that's crazy. This is only our first indicator of 20 indicators, but the very first indicator should be if we don't even have you for 14 consistent days, if you're there for two days and gone, we didn't succeed in any way. Um, so that was meant to be a small adjustment to say, let's extend the expectation from one to 14 as the very first benchmark. But we have 10 to 20 benchmarks we'll track after that, which are all of the long-term prognosis. So the real goal is you stay in housing 
uh, or in our transitional housing, um, which would be these hotel rooms or micro communities or leased units. We then um, help you if you need workforce training, if you need mental health support, addiction treatment, we're getting you all that. We're getting into a job. You're saving up first month, second month's rent, and then we're moving you into your own permanent unit that you're paying your own rent on. Um, uh, and then we're tracking you to make sure you're employed, you're state employed, you're not returning to homelessness. And that's for not just 14 days, that's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, three months, six months. We'll track folks over the course of all four years. Um, so all those outcomes matter. That was meant to just be the very first indicator. And we were actually extending the timeline on that, not shortening it, but I think we didn't communicate it very well. Um, I want to talk about this like search for land and like yes. building housing. This is such an interesting process to me because it's it strikes me that what you're doing is you're just buying up property. You're looking for <laughs> land. Like how, how is that going? Has it been harder than you thought? Has it been easier? Do landlords know you're coming? Uh, it's funny. It has been, um, yeah, I spend more of my time than I thought as like an amateur real estate broker, you know, it's trying to find, yeah. you know, the same is true for trying to support migrants and newcomers that have arrived. We need to find shelter, non-congregate shelter and congregate shelter for them. So on multiple fronts, we're looking for those units all the time. Um, it's actually been very encouraging that people have been very supportive. I mean, every time I do, we've done maybe 40 or more community meetings now and almost every one someone will come up and say, Hey, I have a plot of land. I'd be happy to help support. Or, Hey, I, what about this spot down the street that I think could be a good location? What we find is just every location has its own complexity. I mean, we started with a list of almost 2000 sites and we're down to, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 right now. Hmm. It could be anything from, you know, water to electricity access to whatever the private landowner needs to development rights to rights of way to um you know proximity to other resources we need like grocery store or transit or whatnot so uh and then also because for the micro community sites these are meant to be short-term sites you know sometimes you're it's going to be two to four years as the zoning permit you want to make sure whatever you're doing on the site is worth it for a short-term investment you know you don't want to spend 10 million dollars to retrofit a site for you to have you know 30 people there for four years uh, and so we're trying to find the right balance of the properties that are ready to go uh, and that provide access to the resources people need, but are still cost-effective for taxpayers. Hmm. It sounds but like- Yes, I'm always searching. So if anyone's <laughs> listening that has vacant <laughs> sites, I want them, please reach out to us. That, that's interesting that people are coming forward to, to offer up their space. I was kind of imagining the opposite, that like your ambitious goals would be putting a time clock on your search. And then that, you know, if I'm a landowner, I know I have more leverage. You know, I know you have these ambitious <laughs> goals to hit. Maybe I put the screws in you a little uh, bit. You know, we haven't seen much of that. I do think people will say, we know this is a crisis. We want to help. We want to be part of the solution. And to be clear, we're not at all believing this is some sort of mission accomplished on December 31st, like the challenges of homelessness are over. We know this is just a first step. There's lots more to do. We'll be adding more units and more sites in 2024. Our budget has called for another thousand units in 2024. The long-term goal is, of course, you get folks stabilized and then into their own permanent housing, but we know affordable housing housing is a big crisis for everyone in the city, not just folks that are unhoused. And so we're working on adding 3000 units a year, every year of permanently affordable housing for all working families and working individuals across the city. But we need to get people off the streets where they're most at risk into this transitional housing so then we can add the long-term supply of permanent housing to move people up and through that pipeline. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. 
There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So we're talking about micro communities and um, you picked 11 sites across the city, but you've already backed off one in the Golden Triangle after pushback from neighbors and shrank the size of another potential site in Overland Park, or I'm sorry, in Overland. Um, Can you walk me through the decision you made to cancel that Golden Triangle site? You know, we have many sites that we're working on um, publicly, and I can tell you, you know, some we haven't released that have been private land negotiations. We just updated the council on that. We've had probably, you know, 10 or 12 sites we've been working directly. We've had to let go because we've had challenges either with landowners or with site development. One of the challenges on the Bannock site was it had a huge sinkhole in the middle of it. Um, And so it was going to require significant time and remediation costs to do that, just to literally flatten out dirt to put micro communities on. And uh, the cost to that site for, you know, and there that's still a private landowner that wants to eventually have some other use for it. And so the amount of money and time we had to, had to put in to retrofitting for a very short amount of time and use, um, uh, we thought was going to be challenging. And we did have another great site in the community that was two blocks away. And so, and, and this was one where when you said to people offer sites, I mean, people came to those community conversations and yeah, they had concerns about that site, but they also said, we want our neighbor to do its part. We want, we definitely want to have a site in the neighborhood. We're open to another site in district 10 and we'll help you find other sites. They've been suggesting sites to us. We're chasing them down. We really want to have another district 10 site and we will work on that. So I don't view it as all as a move away from. I'd say that wasn't the specific site for a number of reasons. There are other sites we think in district 10 that would work and Councilman Hines has been very supportive of that. So we're, we're, we're continuing to search. So it wasn't because neighbors, many neighbors were vocally directly opposed to it. Uh, I mean, we we try to take both sides of feedback. One was we put all these sites out publicly for conversation for two reasons. One is we got to do all the permitting and siting and cost analysis to see what the risks are there. And then we want to get feedback from community to figure out what their thoughts or risks or concerns are. Um, and this one uh, had uh, challenges on both fronts. We knew we had community feedback, but we also had real structural challenges at the same time. And so um, we try to see always the ways we can work through whatever the structural challenges are and the community challenges are and get to the best possible agreement on both. And a lot of sites we've had real success on that. And some sites we've hit challenges, but mostly those tend to lead with structural challenges. I just, I have to be honest with you. I struggle because I'm in district three, yeah. Jamie Torres's district. We've had, we've already had two uh, yeah. safe outdoor spaces that by all accounts went really well. One was a couple blocks from my house. It's now being, now that it's done, it's, it's uh, leases up, it's becoming affordable housing for seniors. Um, but my, my concern is my neighborhood, the average income is much lower than say the golden triangle. Is this going to become one of those things where lower income communities like mine end up shouldering the responsibility of more affordable housing or more micro communities when say a Belcaro or Wash Park or Bonnie Bray doesn't have to because their neighbors say, 
we don't want it. No, I'm really glad that you raised that because that is not what's happening and that's not our design. In fact, actually, we don't have any sites in District 3 right now. Here's Which I would say I, we would welcome I, too. I, I don't want to say I we're not welcome to them, but totally we've just agree. already been there. You but know? we've been monitoring that. The thing that we're most excited about is the 11 sites we put forward publicly. 10 of those 11 sites are all in neighborhoods and zip codes with higher than the average median income in the city and county of Denver. So we wanted not to make sure they were in places that already had families that were struggling. Um, that's been a key part of the priority. And that we still have sites moving in all 11 council districts. So we're working on sites in all those places. What you did, what we just found out is you never know. We, we had two sites in district three we were quite excited about that both didn't, that didn't work out in this round for various issues with landowners and others. We're going to go back and keep going. Council president supportive of that. So we think it's, um, it is going to be a process to find those sites. But what I've been very encouraged by is most every council district has had your response. They've said, we do think it's a citywide problem. We do think all districts should have sites and we're willing to be part of it. Here are the questions I have. We have some sites in district four where there were people that were concerned around one site, but they offered two other sites, uh, you know, and we're actually looking at those two sites so they may come through. So I think they were good for their word. They didn't just say, don't bring it at all to my council district. They just said, there are some things I don't like about this site that are problematic, but we would love to help you find other sites. I think that's been most of the spirit people have brought. And I think in part, because they're seeing it work, you know, when they see that we can move people out of encampments into housing, that works for the individuals. It works for us to close down encampments and keep neighborhoods free of that. I think people are excited about the project actually working and they realize this is the key to it working. We, we got to drill down a little deeper on this sure. angry, loud neighbors issue, because this is something we've seen be repeated over and over and over. And it's not just on your House 1000 project, like yep. on bike lanes, too. I mean, there's always yep. these people, the people who can show up to the meetings and express themselves. You just said a few minutes ago, those are voices you want to listen to. But how do you think about that that issue of the the loudest voices in the room, the people that are able to show up at the end of a day? where someone else maybe had, you know, worked had to too work long. Or, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, ve I'm very mindful of that because I've, we've had, you know, I've done about 40 of these community meetings and you do see who can show up and who can make it and what neighborhoods they can make it in and what capacity they have. Um, and so uh, what I've tried to be focused on is I all, you know, I, I try to make sure we balance voices that aren't in the room. So things like, for instance, deliberately having conversations with unhoused neighbors, which we do regularly going to encampments and getting that feedback. So it's not just uh, folks that might have concerns. Uh, it's also talking to faith leaders. It's talking to nonprofits. It's talking to providers that are doing work in the communities. Um, and so we're trying to balance that outcome. And then I, I always say I'm open to take feedback. I don't mind people yelling at me. I was a school principal for a long time, so I'm used to that. Um, but I think we have to stay focused on what is the vision we're trying to accomplish and how do we get from here to there. Um, and if someone doesn't fundamentally agree with the vision, if you believe, you know, these folks don't deserve help and shouldn't get resources and they should just either be arrested or held accountable or pushed along, we're not going to agree on the vision on that. I'm happy to hear you out and why you believe that. Um, if you understand that vision, but you have concerns about how we're going to get from here to there, then I'm happy to, to listen to you and see if there's a way we can find common ground. I think what I most often hear is people who have fear because what they are associating this strategy with is what they see as the current experience of homelessness in Denver, which is if you go by an encampment and you see folks that are living out there without, you know, any storage or stuff and your stuff's all over the street and there's no bathroom you have access to. So there's feces or urine on the road and you can't get trash pickup. So you got trash all over the place. You know, I visited an encampment where I was talking to folks and he said, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, Mike. Uh, and I look out and someone had just dropped food at his tent and they had dropped, you know, 15 pounds of ground beef. You know, doesn't have a stove to cook that on and it's gathering rats and flies and that looks like it's his problem and it's not. So it's, so I think it is a, our ability to say, you know, if we 
want to be able to find ways to support uh, with those wraparound services, we will. And we want to get people to housing, we will. If you have feedback about how to make it better, I'm, I'm very open to listen, um, but I'm not willing to just give up on the idea because you're upset. And I think we just have to get people to be able to see what can be as opposed to what is. And so that's why we keep pushing through. And I know you're worried this is going to be the worst version. We know it can be the best version. We just got to get there. I feel like that's a great segue to our next question here from a listener. Bree, do you want to oh, give sure. it to us? Yeah. Our listener says, hi, CityCast. It seems like a lot of Mayor Johnson Johnston's work has been focused on homelessness, but obviously other issues are still pressing. Could you ask specifically about his plans to increase our sustainability and climate resiliency, especially how he plans to promote the re reliability of RTD. Woohoo. So excited. Um, and I think, thank you, listener. Um, I think but both are true. This is a really important first step for us that we're focused a lot of uh, time and effort on. And we are also focused on a whole number of other city priorities that maybe aren't getting as much coverage right now because I know this is a kind of high profile uh, score, scoreboard to watch of what's happening here, um, particularly on climate. I mean, some of the things we haven't discussed in the budget that we have real agreement on is uh, we are going to really push aggressively on climate goals, particularly on trying to convert gas vehicles to electric. That includes both for our own city fleet, we're pushing to convert far more of our fleet to be all electric and on creating infrastructure for charging stations all across the city. So it makes it easier for all of us to uh, be able to stop using vehicles uh, that are gas uh, burning and also focusing on increasing public transit and access to transit. So one of the things we did to try to increase the reliability and the safety of RTD is we want our own staff to be using it also. So we did uh, all 13,000 city employees, we provided free eco passes to so they can use RTD or light rail to get to and from work. And we're working on partnering now with businesses all around the downtown area to do the same, to be able to help them partner with us. They can even use our reduced rate if they want to buy in that way so that they can make it easier if you're a server working downtown, you don't have to pay 20 bucks to park down here or pay for expensive uh, access. We wanted to make it easier for you to get to and from work and for people to get to and from downtown to uh, enjoy that uh, activity. So that's both good for climate and good for transit. So we are focused also on, on uh, residential uh, and commercial uh, conversion from uh, to all electric utilities, which is gonna be an important part of electrifying the city to make sure we have less uh, oil and gas usage there. So we're really focused on Denver being an, a national international leader in the climate space. Uh, and so we will be pushing hard on many of those, but some of the first ones are about both public transit are about um, the electrification of buildings and about our electrification of our fleet and the city fleet. Okay. One last thing. I lurk on you on social media. <laughs> I saw you kicking it with Travis Scott at Ball <laughs> Arena. Um, well, I was going to ask you if you're like a utopia era Travis Scott guy or Astro World era Travis Scott guy, but I really just want to know if you're really enjoying being the mayor. It seems like a sweet perk. Uh, I do love being the mayor. Um, I have to say, and I confess this to Travis Scott, um, my son is a massive Travis Scott fan. <laughs> I figured um, I didn't want to uh, assume. Yes, I am not as knowledgeable about Travis. I did listen to a whole bunch of his stuff okay. after that, so I did most of the utopia. I had to listen to it without my daughter in the room, it turns out, because it is not all PG. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so uh, I, but yeah, it, it is, I, I was, it was wonderful to get to bump into him and it totally, I think it was the first time my son was like, maybe it's worth you being mayor. Uh, yeah, I was the rest say, of it, not so interesting. That one was like, that one was, we were just on the way to the, to the Broncos game, by the way, I ran into him there. Um, and so I also great to be Travis Scott, right? Cause you have a concert at 7 PM. You're like, Oh, that's why he was back. You guys yeah. were at, okay. He I was did not get to go to the show. He okay. was at a power field for the Broncos Cause he was posing game. with their trophies. Yeah. Now so I get he was it. like, I'll just catch the Broncos game, you know, from the field before I go and do my own show. No, I was embarrassed embarrassingly the idiot who said, oh my gosh, so nice to meet you. What brings you to town? <laughs> 
<laughs> which my son kicked me and was like, um, maybe the sold out show at Ballerina tonight. So not my best performance. Whoops. Yeah, not my best performance, but I will work on doing better next time. Well, Mayor, thank you so much. This was lovely. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I really, I, I just uh, was saying as I was coming and talking to Jordan, it's like the, what I love about getting to be with you all is there are a few times where you have the chance to answer with depth and nuance some of the challenges that we're facing and the city's facing. And when you get one snippet in a press release, it's very hard to sometimes talk about questions like budget balancing or uh, site process or approval process for different sites in depth. And so I uh, both super grateful for what you all add to the civic engagement and news infrastructure of the city and delighted to join you thanks well appreciate you saying that you bet thanks for your time have a great day that's all for today here on citycast denver if you enjoyed this show why not take a minute to tell your favorite voodoo donuts employee about us rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter hey denver and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. And other pre- issue, other pressing issues facing the city, like donuts. I met one of those guys, those old radio guys. It was the wildest thing. He had a soundboard that had all those like. His name was Rick. (laughs) 